So when I was in grade school, uh, for our science lessons, uh, at one point, we, we were given uh, these bug eggs uh, that, we, that we were supposed to help get through the, the various stages of their life cycle, eventually becoming a, you know, a much grander bug after um, various processes of going into cocoons and that sort of thing. I don't think it was a butterfly, but I couldn't remember exactly what it was. Now, apart from how successful I may have been at the end of that, uh, I think that the endeavor about these particular bugs shows us a, a principle, something that we all know well, and we can think about something better than whatever that was, but butterflies. Butterflies can end up being some of the most beautiful creatures in nature, can't they? Colorful, delicate. We like to look at them. And the thing about them is they don't start as these magnificently colored, splendidly winged delights. No, they start as a sort of slimy or hairy looking green or black blobs, not delicately bobbing through the air, but dragging themselves across branches and leaves. So there's quite a stark contrast between those two. And in his goodness, God designed this one creature to have these two sorts of bodies at two different stages of its existence. He designed this same creature to progress from a a lower, less wonderful stage into a higher, glorious body. And now, as we turn to 1 Corinthians 15, we can remind ourselves of a few things that Paul was addressing problems that this congregation had in understanding the gospel and everlasting life. They were doubting the resurrection of the body, a fundamental Christian belief. In, in verses 1 to 34, Paul had tackled the fact of the resurrection, arguing that the gospel itself requires our belief in the bodily resurrection at the end of days. Christ's resurrection, which has already occurred, demonstrated that he, after dying for our sin, risen to life, had overcome our sin. But if he is risen, those joined to him by faith, whose sins have been overcome, well, they will also rise with him. Remaining in death, if that were the case, entails that our sin is not forgiven. And so the gospel itself entails resurrection. And now, in in this portion of Scripture, verse 35 to 58, Paul addressed an an anticipated objection that, namely one that says, we can't really explain what the resurrection body is like. His reply is that indeed we can understand what the resurrection body is like by thinking about how God made various things in creation, how God made us at creation from the outset, and what Christ is like in glory after being raised as our representative. Paul's argument about the resurrection helps us 
to realize a few things about our Christian life. First of all, glory. Glory is not always where we think it is. We need to understand that God's plans and intentions for us in order to know, we need to understand His plans and intentions in order to know what truly is glorious. And we cannot let this life here and now overtake our purview about how God works to bring wonderful things out of even the way that things presently are in the future. And so, our main point for this evening is that Christ has destined us for greater glory by freeing us from sin. Christ has destined us for greater greater glory by freeing us from sin. We're going to think about that in three points together. The principle of glory, the road to glory, and the application of glory. So, first, let's let's think about this principle of glory. Although there are a lot of details in this passage and we can't uh, do justice to them all individually. I think the big picture, if we slow down and just think for a moment, the big picture is actually not hard to grasp because the main point is repeated and illustrated kind of consistently uh, throughout all of this. In terms of structure, if that might help us get our hands around how this is developing, we have three big sections here. So the first, if I, I'm not going to go through these again, so this is this is for your notes if you're a note taker. So the first section we have here is verses 35 to 41, where we find an explanation of how God made the world so that in many instances there are two sorts of bodies, right? That one one creature even can have, like a seed growing into a plant. So second, next big section, verses 42 to 49, looks at two sorts of bodies for humanity in regard to the resurrection through the lens of Adam and Christ in parallel. And then finally, in verses 50 to 58, Paul concluded that this transformed body is needed to enter the new creation, having been given to us in Christ through the forgiveness of sin. Now hopefully that helps us kind of get a handle on uh, some of the, the big picture things that Paul is describing, uh, what the resurrection body will be like, and how it's providing Christ. And so that's the thing that we need to unpack more. That's the big idea. We have to keep in mind, again, that the Corinthians were doubting the future resurrection. The big issue they were pushing is that question in verse 35. If all this is real, Paul, with what kind of body are people going to be brought from the grave? All right, Paul, you say that the dead will be raised. What kind of body is that? Are we talking about zombies? Will we be just like we are now? What's the deal with this? And they mean that. uh, the, The idea would be that you don't have an answer. 
and verse 37 actually captures the sum of Paul's answer throughout, although I think we can provide a, a more easily understood translation than, than what they, they have there. Just adjust, uh, adjusting one phrase. So, uh, here we go. And, and what you sow is not the body that it will become. Now see, you can see pretty easily, I haven't done anything substantial there. It's just a, I hope a, a more clear, a clearer way of stating. And what you sow is not the body that it will become, but a bare seed, perhaps of wheat or of some other kind of grain. When you plant a seed, you know the whole purpose is for it to grow into some other kind of thing, some other kind of body, as Paul's talking the language he's using the seed analogy which is essentially this the same illustration hit from different angles throughout the rest of verses 36 to 41 shows how one living thing can have two modes of existence right when you plant a tulip seed the same simple seed grows and develops into a beautiful flower much more lush and noble then it's seed form. It tur- the seed turns into a tulip. And that's really his point in, in this long list of perhaps things at, at times. And that's why we started tonight thinking about butterflies. When a caterpillar turns into a butterfly, well, it's a given, isn't it? That is, I mean, it's still the same creature. Still, still the same creature with the same brain and, and st- other stuff that was in there, but it has a new, transformed, more glorious body. And Paul's point is that the same thing is true for humanity concerning our present bodies and our resurrection bodies. Verse 42 begins his application to believers. Right, this whole series of illustrations about two sorts of bodies he then brings to bear and says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable, what is raised imperishable. There, there is a present body that we have that will become a different sort of more glorious body at the resurrection, like a caterpillar to a butterfly, we change from perishable, corruptible, weak bodies to imperishable, incorruptible, powerful bodies. But here's the thing, is that there's a surprise in Paul's point. Because all of this would be obvious sort of to Christians in our present condition. Sinners who end up dying, of course, need a better body. Right? But this transformation from our present state to a glorified state, Paul ex- dropping the, the exciting bomb on us, was always God's plan for humanity, not just since our fall into sin, but from creation itself. Let's look at verse 44 and 45. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. That makes sense already, given our, our current circumstances, doesn't it? We have a perishable body. It's going to, it's certainly going to die if Christ doesn't return before 
Our time is up, but it will be raised a better body. But, Paul continues, if there is a natural body, if there, if there's a body that's less glorious for humanity, then there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, and what does he cite? We read it. Genesis 2 verse 7. The first, and he's proving his point. Thus it is written. He's arguing that a natural body becomes a spiritual body because the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So, like a caterpillar was always intended to become a butterfly by nature, by the way it's designed, well, so too humanity was always meant for a more glorious body. The principle of glory is that God always had a more glorious existence in store for his people. Always, even since the beginning. And that brings us to our second point, the road to glory. If this principle is true, well, how do we get there? Right? The question is, what is the connection between creation, as Paul has just cited the pre-fall existence of Adam? What is the connection between creation and this glorious state? And that connection was built directly into the way that God fashioned us. Paul wrote, if, there's an if-then, a consequence here, right? If there's a natural body, there's a spiritual body. If there's a caterpillar, there's a butterfly. Only the same principle of development from one sort of body to a more glorious body applies to us as well. And we have to be startled, in a sense, I think, about this citation of, of Genesis 2-7, about how God created first created Adam from the dust and breathed life into him. And so we must understand that this mundane caterpillar to a beautiful butterfly principle is about not merely taking us from the fallen state after our sin to a restored immortal state, but concerns God's plans for us, for our existence in general. To go from, that he He meant us to go from that initial seed into a blossoming flower. A better body was waiting for us since creation. And there's two questions that come right out of that. Two of them. First, what mechanism would have transformed Adam and the rest of us from our natural body to a spiritual body, even from creation? And then, the second one will be, why is this higher state called a spiritual body? So, let's think about that first one, though. What what mechanism would have transformed Adam and and the rest of us, if Adam was our representative, which he was, from this natural into a spiritual condition. Well, we go into context, don't we? Because as it happens uh, in the first century, verse numbers weren't in our Bibles. We've added that as helpful little indicators to keep our, our place. So when when biblical authors cite the wording of Scripture, well, usually you know that they're not just grabbing that phrase, but they're, they're referring to an entire 
context as well. And so right after recounting, if we think about Genesis, right after recounting Adam's creation in the verse that Paul quoted, Genesis puts attention on the Garden of Eden. Right after that, focusing pretty quickly on the tree of knowledge of good and evil and on God's command not to eat from it. Now this focuses Adam's progress from caterpillar to to butterfly around his engagement, namely his temptation with this tree. In Genesis 3, 21 to 23, confirms this point, confirms what I've just claimed about that, the centrality of, of these trees in, in progressing Adam from natural to spiritual. So it says, Behold, after, after Adam sinned, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. So that marks his failure, right? With, uh, to do with the tree. And focuses his failure on the tree. And God continues, now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, marking how that failure with that tree is what meant the loss of everlasting life. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. Now, that life Adam lost is really one that he, not one that he had, but one that he failed to obtain. The, the life that Adam lost with the tree of knowledge, Paul said, would have been the butterfly stage. The spiritual body. Because if there's a natural body, then there's a spiritual body. There's a, the other question. So that's our mechanism. God gave a tree to Adam to test what he would do. And if he had obeyed God's command, he would have progressed from natural to spiritual. Why is it called a spiritual body? I think that's one of the interesting questions that we're probably going to have. Because a lot of times we can think spiritual means disembodied. A ghost. But that's clearly not what's in view here. Because we're talking about the resurrection of the body. So spiritual doesn't mean lacking physicality. Now remember, up uh, in a few verses prior to this, 1 Corinthians 15, 22 and 23, and now 45 to 49 have presented Jesus as the second Adam, the one who successfully completed what Adam should have done in the garden. How does, how does Scripture link how does scripture link this i christ's success christ's victory to this idea of a spiritual body because that helps us understand what this will be like what we mean by spiritual romans 1 verse 4 jesus was declared to be the son of god in power it's one of the things paul talked about not the spiritual body won't be weak but will be raised in power. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. According to the spirit of holiness. That's what was at work in raising him from the dead to power. 
Acts 2, verse 33. Being therefore exalted, exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Namely, the the Gentiles coming to faith. Or, yeah, Pentecost is occurring. People are coming to faith. When Jesus obtained his exaltation in the resurrection, right, which Philippians 2 tells us was by his obedience, he was rewarded with this glorified body in the resurrection. A glorified body that came, as we've just seen, by the work of the Holy Spirit. By the infusing, by the granting of the Holy Spirit. And so connecting this to the caterpillar butterfly principle, even from creation, Adam had the prospect of obtaining a glorified body, which is spiritual because it's granted in a new experience of and and a new presence of the Holy Spirit. A new form, a new heightened uh, uh, indwelling of the Spirit, even within Adam, was possible. So the road to glory, the road to glory was obtaining the Holy Spirit by perfect obedience if Adam had passed his temptation, his test at that tree. And that brings us to our our final point, the application of glory, where we we hope we might think more about how we can incorporate this into our lives for hope and and help. So if if we can sum up some of the dense things that we've considered, it's a dense passage. God made us with this butterfly principle from the beginning. So that Adam could have advanced, as our first representative, advanced all humanity from that natural caterpillar state to one with a richer experience of the Holy Spirit in a glorified body. But we know that Adam failed in the prospects set before him. And so we have to ask ourselves in that regard, Concerning, concerning what happened to him, why? Why did he come short? With such greatness set before him, why would he give it up? Well, clearly, by, by trusting in the serpent, Adam believed that God would or could not actually make things better than they were. We see that, right? God has set before Adam this prospect of heightened existence, knowing more deeply the Holy Spirit. And Adam says, I'll take this fruit instead. And the only thing that makes that remotely reasonable is if he believed this serpent that God wouldn't make things better, and that better than God's promises is this piece of fruit. He doubted the truthfulness and trustworthiness of God's word and God's offer. 
He found, and this is where we can start to lean into ourselves, he found the things of this world more glorious than God's promises. He looked upon the forbidden fruit and decided its taste outweighed God's promise of spiritual blessings. Christian, I wonder how often we too decide that what this world offers is more appealing than God's spiritual blessings. How frequently do the lusts of the flesh seem so much more appealing than the blessings of the Spirit? How much do we find ourselves easily motivated for for movies, television, and sporting events, but find it difficult, find it's an effort to drag ourselves to hear God's Word morning and evening? On the Lord's Day. How often does giving in to temptation feel like it would be more satisfying than obeying our Savior? Do we not believe that His His commandments are good for us? It's not about buckling down and just doing what we're told. It's do we believe that God actually knows what's best and what's rewarding? When we think about the resurrection, I think we, we can push this even further because by thinking that when we consider the resurrection, I think even Christians flinch at the thought of everlasting life. Why, though? Why, why is the prospect of heavenly life unsettling? Or not appealing in any capacity. Because what if heaven is boring compared to this life, right? What if, what if I don't like it as, lo- as much as I like this? What if I don't like existence in God's presence as, as much as I like football or takeout? Those amazing things that endlessly satisfy us, right? Likely... Too many people conceive of everlasting life. I think one of the issues here uh, is I think that too many people can conceive of everlasting life as, as one long praise music session with Jesus leading the worship band, which is not the case and would be putting to me too. Still, do we, nonetheless, maybe you have a better perception. And do we find ourselves more enamored with this world than with spiritual blessings? So we, we need to recover a sense of the value of everlasting life, of, of spiritual life in the everlasting condition, a better way to put that. Glory Power, incorruptibility. These are the things that movies highlight for you and, and they thrill our hearts and then we read them in the Bible and we, pfft. That seems less enthusiastic. Um, 
seems to bring about less enthusiasm. All the things that, when we think about what this genuinely means, though, all the things that weigh you down, make you feel worn out and worn down, will be removed. All the loss that you have experienced throughout your life will be overturned. Every believer that that we have seen die and, and suffer will be restored with incorruptible strength. All the loneliness and lack of acceptance that you have ever felt, that has ever dropped heavily on your heart, will be obliterated as you know the direct presence of God through the Holy Spirit in your soul and body. How can we not look on these things with excitement? The question simply should be, is how do we reach that glory if Adam plunged us into our present corrupted state? That's really the only thing that should grab our minds when we really consider this well. And verse 50 says to us that mere flesh and blood cannot enter God's kingdom. We have to be spiritual rather than natural people to enter. And that happens, as we're told, at the resurrection, when Christ will change us to be like Him in His glorified state. But we can never forget... We can never forget that that doesn't just happen, but we are given glorification by Jesus. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Who we... We who have deserved death because of our sin, because of our violations, transgressions of God's holy law, have been set free from the sting of death, from its power to bind us, because our sins have been forgiven. The God who should have abandoned you to condemnation has paved the road to glory for you. Although we are caterpillars, damaged, Sinful, corrupted caterpillars at that, we obtain glory by being wrapped in the cocoon of Jesus Christ, who washed away all of our sins and remakes us into wonderful new creatures. And the difference, the difference between butterflies who emerge from their cocoons and you, believer, that we never leave the transforming embrace of the Lord Jesus. When we feel broken, when we feel beat down, overwhelmed, wrecked, damaged, natural, we must remember that we're still wrapped in the perfect covering of the Lord Jesus. Being infused with His Holy Spirit to equip us even if imperfect, imperfectly, for this life. 
we are bound up in the sweet swaddling cloths of Christ's perfect righteousness, looking forward to sprouting wonderful butterfly wings of resurrection bodies when Jesus returns to pull us out of our graves. Therefore, my beloved brothers, because of all Paul's told you, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. We take heart, believer, always, knowing Christ's closeness, trusting his provision, and waiting on his mercy in all that he gives us to do. Let's pray. Father God, we are glad that the things of this world are not all that there are. We are glad that glory stands before us. And even though we cannot obtain that glory on our own, we are glad that you have given us that glory in our Savior, Jesus Christ. We are glad that when we come to him by faith, when we acknowledge ourselves as sinners, when we confess our sins, when we place our trust in him to be the one who forgives our sin and who has earned our way into heaven, he accepts us and gives us the right to everlasting life as your children. We pray, O God, for the beginning and the increase of that faith, even in this room tonight. For those who may need to trust in these very promises, we ask that you, by your sovereign grace, might work it now. And we pray that for those of us who lose sight of this so easily, we pray that you might strengthen our faith, that you might increase it, and help us to leave here enthused, excited, filled with hope because of what you have set before us. And that means that the things of this world are not only where we must find our satisfaction, but they will never overcome us entirely. We do pray that you would give us good things to do this week. As we thought about this morning, help us to do good to all, especially to the household of faith. Show us the good works you've prepared us prepared for us to do in advance and help us to go about them knowing the Lord Jesus in his mercy. In his name we pray. Amen.